morning, good afternoon, or good evening, Rock Hill in the world. I'm Chris Carrado. Welcome to another Rock Hill video. Uh, today we have on Howie Hawkins of the Green Party. He's running for president. Uh, thank you for coming on our show today, Howie. Well, thanks for having me. No problem, no problem. As always, Rock Hill in the world, I like to let everyone know at the beginning of our show, whenever we invite our guests on, we never bring anybody on to bash them or praise them. Everyone gets an equal opportunity to share their thoughts and issues. So today we're going to start uh, talking with Howie. Howie, what would you like to share about yourself when it comes to your background, family life, and work? Well, I'm a retired Teamster. Before that, I worked in construction, but that was to pay the bills. I've really been a activist and organizer since the 1960s. I got involved as a teenager in the San Francisco Bay Area. First it was civil rights, 64, and then in 65 they escalated in Vietnam, got involved in the anti-war movement, and became convinced at that time that we need another party. Because these two parties were dragging their feet on civil rights and anti-poverty and getting us involved in stupid wars like Vietnam. So that's what I've been about for the last 50 years. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you, Howie. So uh, my next question I want to talk about is, you know, you're running for president in the Green Party. If someone doesn't know anything about the Green Party or they had questions, what would you like to share with, share with them about that, the, the core beliefs? Well, first of all, we don't believe in taking uh, corporate money or money from the special interests. We want a party that represents regular working people, the immense majority of people in this country. And what we want to do is make sure everybody's basic material needs are met and they have a fair shot in society. So we have what we call four pillars. One of them is social justice. Another is peace or nonviolence. And that's about cutting back on military spending and uh, being a friend of the people around the world rather than getting involved. We're involved in 14 active wars now with combat troops and 800 foreign military bases and the rest of the world sees us as the greatest threat to peace, according to some uh, Pew uh, surveys done around the world. So, social justice, peace, ecology, obviously the Green Party, that's our metaphor. So right now our big emphasis is on a Green New Deal to deal with this climate crisis. And then the fourth thing is grassroots democracy. We don't just want better representation, we want to restructure our political and economic institutions so people can participate in the decisions that affect them on a regular basis, not just at elections that are periodic. So that means citizen assemblies like New England town meetings uh, in our neighborhoods that you know have a say on how city budgets are allocated and what our representatives to the city council do. And the same thing on the economic side. We prefer worker co-ops where we get to elect the board, or if it's smaller, we get to make the decisions directly, and we get to keep the full fruit of our labor instead of getting a fixed wage and letting the owners of the business take all that extra value we created. So those are the four pillars, ecology, grassroots democracy, social justice, and peace. Gotcha. Thank you, Howie. Howie, is there anything else you'd like to share that you're, you're currently working on? Well, I've been running my campaign around three life or death issues. One of them is the climate emergency, and that's where we're talking about a Green New Deal to get to zero to negative greenhouse gas emissions and 100% clean energy by 2030. The second life or death issue is the growing inequality. 
I mean, we're in a situation now after 45 years of stagnant wages and growing inequality that working class life expectancies are in decline. So we want an economic bill of rights that includes a job guarantee. If you're willing and able to work, there's a public job for you. If there's not work in the private sector, a guaranteed income above poverty, affordable housing, Medicare for all, lifelong public education from childcare and pre-K through post-secondary college and trade school, and then a secure retirement. We want to double Social Security benefits so every senior is living above the poverty line. And the third issue is the one that none of the major parties are talking about, none of their leadership, none of their presidential candidates, and that's this new nuclear arms race. The bullets in the atomic scientists has their doomsday clock the closest it's ever been to midnight because we started a nuclear modernization program under Obama, continued under Trump, and it's destabilized the nuclear balance of power. Russia and China have followed suit. So we're calling for peace initiatives. 75% cut in military spending, withdrawal from these overseas endless wars, pledging no first use of nuclear weapons, uh, disarming to a minimum credible deterrent, and then going to the other nuclear powers and saying, we want complete and mutual disarmament because these weapons should never be used. Because if they are, we're all done for. And we can go there with world public opinion. Three years ago, 122 nations agreed to the text of a new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. The International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons got the Nobel Peace Prize for that. And hardly anybody in this country knows that. So we think that should be a top campaign issue and we're trying to make it one. Okay. Thank you, Howard. Uh, so b back in March of this year, we, we started learning more about coronavirus, specifically COVID-19. You know, and everyone has their thoughts and opinions on it. You know, some feel, uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And then some feel it's, you know, it's definitely a global pandemic. We, we've heard everything, you know, as far as how severe it is. What do you think about it and how would you have handled it differently? Well, it's very severe. We're approaching 200,000 deaths. Uh, the latest epidemiological study at the University of Washington says that could double by the election. 400,000 people dead. That's more than all the wars we fought since uh, World War II. And so it's very serious. And what should have been done, I mean, Trump could have been the hero of this thing. Instead, he walked away. He, he, he let COVID win. He's a loser. But he could have followed the public uh, health officials' advice which was we got to test people, we got to time contact trace those that are infected, so other people in touch with them, we can find out, well, first isolate them, and if they don't become infected, they can come back out. But in other words, that's how you suppress the virus, like they've done all across the Pacific Rim, from New Zealand to South Korea and across Europe. And we suppress the community virus and go back to work and to school safely. Instead, we got 4% of the world's population and 25% of the COVID deaths in the world. It's a total failure. And, you know, I think Trump has been totally incompetent. Doesn't seem like he cares. But where's Biden been? I mean, he lives within commuter difference, distance of the White House press board. He could have been convening news conferences like, say, Andrew Cuomo did in uh, New York early in the pandemic and been saying we need a test, trace, and quarantine program. And while he's got their attention, there are many other issues, like defending the Postal Service or demanding that 
uh, unemployed workers get that $500 or $600 uh, federal supplement to their uninsurance benefit. Instead, he sort of just sat back and let Trump hang himself with his own words. But that's not providing leadership in the midst of a crisis. So in a way, that makes him complicit in all those deaths. So, you know, I'm really upset. I think that we got uh, the two governing parties in this country are presiding over a failed state. You go around the world, I mean, countries like Burundi and Thailand figured out how to suppress the virus. And we haven't figured that out yet. It's, it's, it's just incredible. Thank you, Howard. Uh, next question is, you know, while we've been uh, fighting uh, COVID-19, we've seen a, a, a racial tension. Uh, we see it every, every day on the news. There's, there's a lot going on. How do you feel your party would uh, improve race relations? Well, the issue is not just relations. The issue is racial oppression. And the immediate issue is police brutality. And so we say we need community control of the police. We can't let them police themselves because that enables them to get away with their crimes, assaults, sometimes killings, and rackets like civil asset forfeiture. So we want community control. Police commissions that are either elected by the public or better selected by lot like juries. So they really represent the community and they hire and fire the police chief, set the policies and independently do the investigation and discipline of officers for misconduct. Then they'll be working for us. As long as the police work for themselves, this problem is, is gonna continue. And then they talk about defunding the police, which means redirecting uh, a significant portion of police department budgets to services that the police are asked to police rather than solve a problem, like a vacancy ticket for the homeless instead of a home, or a criminal drug charge instead of drug treatment for the addicted. The problem is there's not enough money in the police departments to provide those services. It's got to be provided federally. So we're calling for basically a Marshall Plan for our cities and our other communities that are uh, impoverished. So uh, these are communities that have been segregated, discriminated, and exploited for generations. So we need to invest in the housing and businesses and jobs and schools and healthcare to bring these communities up. And that will help reduce the crime and violence that concentrates where you have concentrated poverty. The other thing we wanna do is end the war on drugs. I mean, drug abuse should be a health problem, not a criminal problem. So we want to legalize, tax, and regulate marijuana like we do with alcohol and tobacco, which are more harmful drugs. And then the hard drugs like heroin and cocaine, we decriminalize them like they did in Portugal in 2001. So instead of a criminal charge, you get an appearance ticket. And you show up at a hearing with a doctor, a social worker, and a lawyer. And they look at your situation and see how they might could help. Maybe you need drug treatment because you're addicted. Maybe you need counseling because you're using the drugs to cope with some other problem. Maybe you need a job to just stabilize your life and get out of the, the, the drug life. And over the course of this program, uh, deaths from overdoses and HIV spread have been radically reduced. Uh, hardly have any street crime. And actually less people now use the hard drugs than before. So that's another thing because the police, uh, a lot of what they do is enforce drug laws, uh, which shouldn't be a criminal issue, it should be a health issue. Thank you. Uh, something else we've been hearing a lot more, uh, fa fairly new that I've been seeing on the news a lot more is about mail-in voting. Uh, 
of course, once again, we have two, two totally different opinions. Some feel it would be a huge manipulation in the voting process. Some feel it won't be that big of a deal. What are your thoughts? There's states that do nothing but mail-in ballots. You know, we've been doing absentee ballots forever. The idea that we can't do that is absurd. I think Trump's ginning that up because he's afraid he's going to lose the election and he wants to question the legitimacy and maybe resist a peaceful transfer of power. That's the real danger here. Um, now, the problem also is that for the states to be able to afford everybody a mail-in ballot option so they don't have to go to the polls in this pandemic, they need money, and that money's not been forthcoming from the Congress. And that is a problem. So I think mail-in ballots, an option is a good idea. I still think we need polling places. I plan to vote on election day at my polling place, but everybody should have that mail-in ballot option. And uh, we just need to get the money to the states, and it's getting real late to do it. Gotcha. Thank you. Every, every election season, one of the main things we hear about is the economy and how each candidate is going to improve the economy. How would you improve the economy? Uh, public investment. Right now, both Trump and Biden are counting solely on private enterprise to pull us out of this deep hole that we're now in because of the coronavirus pandemic. Consumer demand is down because so many people are unemployed and no others worried about their situation or, or holding on to their money. With demand down, uh, businesses that might invest and create jobs are holding back. It's too risky. And all we get from Trump and Biden is tax breaks, tax credits, subsidies, incentives for the business class to invest. But because it's too risky to invest, they take that money and they buy back their stocks. They invest in financial securities, which rearranges who owns the productive assets we got, doesn't create any new ones or employ any new people. So the way to get the economy going is by public investment. And that's our Green New Deal. Our Green New Deal is a $27.5 trillion 10-year program to convert all our productive systems to clean energy, not just the energy production, but manufacturing, agriculture, transportation, and buildings. Massive job. We'll create over 30 million jobs. And we need that now for economic recovery as well as climate protection. And the key there is doing it through the public sector. We did a little bit of that during the New Deal. Works Progress Administration put people to work. You know, building infrastructure or providing services. Or even, you know, they took cultural workers. You know, artists did murals. Playwrights wrote plays and Actors perform them for the public benefit. We can do all of these things to get people to work, and that gets money flowing in the economy, gets consumer demand up, but it starts with the investment. And since the private sector won't do it, and you give the rich folks the money, they're not going to do it because it looks risky. we got to do it through the public sector. So our Green New Deal emphasizes public enterprise and planning in the energy, transportation, and manufacturing sectors to really make this transition, which we need for climate protection, and now we need for economic recovery. Got it. Thank you. Uh, you, you briefly touched on, um, I believe, Medicare for all. Uh, is that how you, how you would make uh, health care more affordable in this country? Is that, is that the plan? Yeah. It's much more efficient use of health care dollars. It all goes through the public sector, 
we're going to have to pay taxes for that. Well, we already paid taxes for the Medicare we got for people 65 and older, for Medicaid for low-income people, and some other uh, public health programs, like for uh, members of the military, and there's another program for American Indians and so forth. You put that private spending on premiums, co-pays, deductibles, and out-of-pocket expenses together with your taxes, that costs more to us than if we just had a single public payer. So that's what we want to do and cover everybody and make it improved Medicare. Right now, I'm, I'm on Medicare now. I got to pay a premium every month. When I go to the doctor, I get co-pays. Uh, we want this free at the point of service. So you just go in and get the health care you need and you pay your taxes and the whole system's paid for. It. Um, so it would also cover all medically necessary services. Medicare doesn't cover vision or hearing or a number of other things. I got a foot problem it doesn't cover. It used to, and then they stopped. So uh, we say all medically necessary services, and, and we can do this for less money than uh, the mixed system we have now. Because right now, about a third of our healthcare dollar goes to administering this complex system with hundreds of insurance plans. You go to the doctor, every doctor needs a couple people just to figure out what your plan is, is the service or the treatment that we're talking about covered, and then they got to build the insurance company. The insurance company looks at that, and they don't want to pay it because the less they pay, the more profits they get. So they, they haggle back and forth. It's an enormous bureaucracy that we don't need. Single-payer, Medicare for all would be much more efficient. Thank you. Another a hot button we hear about every uh, election season, and even throughout the course of uh, the year, is everyone's stance on, on firearms, like what, what we should do to prevent shootings, uh, what type of guns we should be able to have and not be able to have. What would you like to share about that? Well, to prevent shootings and killings, and we're off the charts compared to other countries, and that is rooted in social problems we have. we got to end poverty, and we've got to have a cultural transition. We've got, you know, too many macho males out there thinking they're going to solve problems with guns. Or they get frustrated. We also have a high suicide rate. Why are so many people so depressed? I think it's partly to do with people have uh, disappointed economic prospects. They call them deaths of despair. There are people dying from drug overdoses, but also, you know, suicides with guns. So I think we got to address those social roots of violence. As far as people having guns, I think we can work within the Heller framework of the Supreme Court. You have a right to personal firearms if you're law-abiding. But the public has a right to regulate them in the interest of public safety. So then it gets down to the details. And, you know, I believe we should have universal background checks. I have no problem with uh, gun safety requirements in terms of storing it or maybe getting uh, training before you possess your firearm or maybe a cooling off period for a handgun so that, you know, some people buy the gun and go, want to go use it right now on somebody. And, with a cooling off period that might prevent some of those. I'm willing to entertain all those things. And also, I'm a former Marine. I know what a military assault rifle can do, and we've seen too many cases where they kill a lot of people real quick. They're not needed for self-defense, and they're not needed for hunting. Uh, they're not needed for sports shooting. I mean, you could have them at ranges where people get the thrill of shooting a you know, semi-automatic weapon, but I want to have a buyback program for the military assault weapons. Because they're a real danger on the streets and 
they're weapons of war. They're not things that we should have. You know, we don't let people have bazookas, uh, you know, uh, or artillery, or, you know, mortars. So I don't think we should let them have military assault rifles either. But, you know, rifles, shotguns, pistols, that's fine. As long as they're law-abiding. Law Got it. Thank you, Howie. And thank you for serving the United States Marine Corps. I didn't know that. That's good to know. Thank you. Um, so that brings me to my next question we're going to talk about. You briefly talked about uh, the military. And what else would you like to share about funding? And when should the United States send troops to war? Well, for our own defense of our own territory, and in alliance with uh, other countries, preferably through the UN, uh, to stop aggression and genocide. I think those are the conditions under which we should do it. But we got to be careful there because every imperial power has intervened saying they're doing it for humanitarian reasons. When Hitler went into Czechoslovakia, he said he was going in to protect the German-speaking people living in Czechoslovakia. So, uh, I mean, when there really is a, a threat, not a pretext. Um, so I, I think that's what we need. Um, what the military we got now is much bigger than we need to do that. I think, you know, we, we're talking about 75% cut. We will still have the world's largest military and, and plenty to defend ourselves. And, I mean, the United States is naturally well protected. You know, China's not coming across here on boats. Russia's not going to, you know, sail, you know, out of the Black Sea and through all those passes to come here and invade us. Mexico's not going to invade us. Canada's not going to invade us. We're in a pretty good geopolitical situation for our own country. The problem is <clears throat> our foreign policy elites are our corporate elites. And they deploy us overseas to protect the profits of U.S.-based global corporations. And that's not protecting our security as people in the United States. That's about their special interests. So I think we need a you know different orientation for our foreign policy. Instead of being the world's global military empire, why don't we be the world's humanitarian superpower and help the global south, for example, leap out of the 19th century fossil fuel age into the 21st century solar age, like we should be doing and make friends around the world instead of enemies. I think that would do more to promote peace and security than this you know, military that the first thought when we don't agree with what a country's doing is to impose economic sanctions, which is aggressive, and then you know, saber rattle at them even if we don't invade them. But we've, we've invaded a lot of countries in the last few decades. Excellent. Thank you, Howie. Uh, next question is, You'll, and I'm sure you've heard this uh, so many times, uh, it's crazy. Uh, people will say, oh, voting third party, that's just a waste. And if you vote for him, you, you, you're, you're voting for this guy and on both sides of the thing. What, what would you say, why should Americans start voting third party or at least consider it? Well, if you're a progressive or anybody that supports Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and taxing the rich to fund our human needs and environmental protection and you want tuition-free public college and those kind of reforms you know i'm for those things joe biden and donald trump are not so if you're a progressive thinking you got to vote for biden to stop trump uh 
What you're doing is wasting your vote. You're silencing your voice. You're getting lost in the sauce because you vote for Biden. They're not going to know you want Medicare for all. You voted for Biden who's opposed to Medicare for all. And the problem for the left, the progressive left, is that if we just keep giving the Democrats our votes all the time, they're going to take us for granted, which they've been doing. And they chase the Republicans further and further to the right. So we need an independent left in this country so we can put these proposals forward, uh, not just in primaries, but right through to the general election. And, and that's why the Green Party needs to be supported. And we need to be running candidates locally. I mean, we're going to build the Greens into a major party by electing thousands of people to local office and building up from there. And while we have over 100 elected officials around the country, it should be thousands to really begin to have an impact. And one of the things we get out of a presidential run is ballot lines. In most states, about 40 to 50 states, the presidential vote affects whether the party's on the ballot or not uh, for the coming election cycle. And it's usually one, two, or three percent. Some states it's five percent. A couple it's 20 percent, which is very difficult. New Mexico's half a percent. So uh, that's one of the objectives of our campaign is to uh, secure more ballot lines so it's much more easier for our candidates to run. It's a lot harder if you don't have a ballot line. If you want to run for Congress in this country, in most states it takes thousands of signatures. And you end up spending all your time getting signatures instead of running a campaign. If you want to run for the House of Commons in the United Kingdom, it takes 10 signatures. If you want to run for the Parliament in New Zealand, it's two signatures. Australia's 50, Canada's 100. Here we're thousands. And that's a big problem. I mean, we suppress third parties. And, and so anyway, people should vote for the Green Party so we get ballot lines so we can run our local candidates in the next election. Thank you. I just want to say it's, it's definitely an honor to have you on this show. Uh, definitely want to give you an opportunity to share your thoughts. Uh, how would you say the mainstream media, have they, have they given you a fair shot when it comes to getting time to uh, share your thoughts and what you'd like to do? They have not. I mean, we've been pretty much totally blanked out in the cable networks and the uh, TV networks. And we get some mentions now and again in the Washington Post and some of the other papers, but it's not part of the main campaign narrative, which makes it difficult for us. Ballot access is tough. We're in court right now in several states just trying to defend our petitions. Um, but an even bigger obstacle is to get hurt. And I think, you know, we bring something that ought to be discussed. You know, the Green New Deal. The Democrats took our slogan. It's been our signature issue for a decade. I was the first candidate in this country to run on it in 2010 when I was running for governor in New York. And at the end of 2018, the Democrats took the slogan. They diluted the content, and now they buried it. You know, ALC does not have a Green New Deal plan like we do. And Biden and the Democratic Convention never uttered those three words, Green New Deal. And meanwhile, the most recent International Panel on Climate Change report on how we stay below 1.5 degree rise in temperature Celsius uh, said we have 420 gigatons carbon we can release before we uh, blast past that temperature threshold, which is a threshold of dangerous climate change. And we're emitting 42 gigatons carbon per year. It's been two years since that report. We're eight years from blasting through that budget. 
And of course, Trump calls climate change a hoax, but you look at the Democratic platform and they're acting like it's a hoax. So we ought to be part of the debate. And, you know, let people see our plan to deal with this climate crisis, what the Green New Deal is about. And uh, unfortunately, that I mentioned the nuclear arms race, that's not even being talked about. Even though these treaties are falling away, the last bilateral treaty between the United States and Russia concerning strategic arms expires next February 5th. I haven't heard Biden or Trump address that. I haven't heard the corporate media ask them about it. I mean, we've got a real problem here. The life or death issues we face, they're not being solved by the two major parties and they're not being discussed in this election. And it's a shame. Thank you. Uh, if you could get on a debate and go against uh, Biden and Trump, what would you tell them? Well, I guess I'd ask Trump, when's Mexico going to pay for your stupid wall? <laughs> and maybe, uh, how are your bones first doing, you chicken hawk? And Biden, I would say, you know, why the hell are you going backwards on the climate uh, policy? You know, the policy this year is worse than it was in 2016, which was totally inadequate. And you want to bring back nuclear power. Nuclear power costs two to three times more than most forms of solar and wind energy. And, Joe, you were part of the you know, Obama administration when you subsidized with loan guarantees the first six nukes we've tried to build in this country since the 1970s, first six ordered. And already, even with the subsidies, four of them have been shut down for cost overruns and construction delays. And the only two still being built in vocal Georgia are because, uh, what's the name? Uh, what's the governor's name? Uh, Kemp, who was Secretary of State, suppressed a lot of black votes and stole the election from Stacey Abrams. And Kemp represents Georgia Power, which is owned by the Southern Company. So they're squeezing Georgia ratepayers to pay for this new, which is suffering enormous cost overruns and construction delays. So, Joe, why are you going down that dead end when the money could be better spent building our solar and wind infrastructure? Okay. So I, I'd have plenty to say. I'm ready to debate them. I'm not sure they're ready to debate me. Got it. And on the other side of things, if you were to say get on a stage with the uh, independent Charles or the libertarian Jorgensen, is anything specific you'd want to share with them or talk to them about? Well, I I, I think I may be on a uh, debate with them on October eighth in Denver. Oh, okay. And I've been on a previous debate with both Mark Charles and Joe Jorgensen. Uh, that was in Chicago last last year or last, earlier this year. Um, well, you know, I think there's a lot of issues we need to talk about. I think things we share is ballot access. I know with the Libertarians, we share uh, similar views about ending the war on drugs, ending these stupid foreign wars, protecting our civil liberties, uh, rolling back the surveillance state. And, you know, Mark Charles has a good message about the Discovery Doctrine and how that has distorted uh, our relations with indigenous people, you know, all through the Americas. Uh, so I, you know, that that discussion will be a lot more interesting than I think the Trump-Biden debate will be. Okay. Well, I just got two questions left. Um, is there anything you'd like to share about a, a common misconception about you? And if there's anything we haven't talked about, what would you like to add? Uh, common misconception. 
uh, that I'm not in this to win, or I'm not serious, or this is a vanity thing. No, this is hard work, <laughs> and you 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 put yourself out and you're a target, and you know I can deal with that. But this is about advancing these issues, and the people that you know say that you know I say, well, put yourself out. If you can do better, you run for office. Um, so. No, this is very serious. This is about, uh, we don't have to win the White House to move the debate. The historic role of third parties in this country has been put issues on the table that the two major parties won't address. Starting with the slavery question, it was the Liberty Party when the Whigs and the Democrats wouldn't address it. And that evolved into Free Soil and finally the Republican Party, which actually took power in the 1860s. And the populist parties, the Greenback Labor Party, the People's Party, Brought issues that you know had to be addressed and finally were maybe not like exactly like the populists wanted, but you know banking reform, money reform, dealing with monopolies, uh, and they were still fighting for voting rights for black folks in the South that were being taken away by uh, the Redeemer governments that destroyed uh, Reconstruction. So, and then the socialists, you know, they brought forward the idea that if you're unemployed. Maybe the public sector should put you to work, provide things the community needs. And we did some of that in the New Deal. And the social insurance programs like Social Security and unemployment insurance. The socialists got that into the debate. So we've been doing that throughout our history. And that's, uh, that's why this is serious. You know, we, we can move the ball down the football field even if we don't score the touchdown. We'll get some first downs. And... Uh, in terms of what I would add, uh, yeah, I guess the last point I would make is, you know, they call us spoilers, but I call the Democrats spoilers because ever since Ralph Nader ran in 2000, we've been giving them the proven nonpartisan solution to the spoiler problem, and that is to replace the Electoral College with a national popular vote using ranked choice voting. And they haven't embraced that. You know, the reason they lost to Republicans in 2000 and 2016 was suppression of the black vote. Big time in Florida in 2000, in key places like Detroit in 2016. And then uh, the next thing is the Electoral College. Bush and Trump lost the popular vote. It was the Electoral College they put in there. The Greens didn't suppress the black vote. We didn't install the Electoral College. We've been giving them the answer. So... That's another issue that ought to be debated. And I think it's an idea whose time has come. We now have 23 cities and counties that use ranked choice voting. The state of Maine now uses it for all its elections, including this presidential election. Their electoral voters will be allocated by a ranked choice vote. And uh, it's on the ballot in Massachusetts. This is spreading. And that's what I mean. We're moving the ball down the field. We're getting some first downs, even if we haven't got the touchdown yet.